Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Freddie Washington. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Inside Music Cast. On this episode, we welcome one of the music industry's most prolific bassists. He's often described as a singer's bassist, which is one of the reasons why Donald Fagan called upon his talents to support his new solo record, Morph the Cat. He's currently on tour with Donald Fagan and Walter Becker on the U.S. Steeded Ann Tour. His discography reveals that he's definitely a member of the who's who of session players and has contributed to many projects and tours. For instance, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Smokey Robinson, Diana Ross, Patrice Ruchin, the Isley Brothers, and Ricky Martin, just to mention a few. Our guest today is none other than Reddy Freddie Washington. Freddie, welcome to Inside Music Cast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, listen, let's get started. Uh, I've got some questions. Recently, me and Rick were in New York City uh, visiting with you, and uh, you were finalizing your rehearsal for the tour that you're on currently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how did the, the rehearsals go? I mean, and uh, can you answer how many weeks typically does it take in order to prepare a whole band before you guys hit the road? Oh, well, the first thing, the rehearsals were going it went very well, and uh, typically uh, it takes because there's so much music, mm-hmm. so many they have so many songs to learn. At least at least three weeks mm-hmm. of you know a couple you know a couple about a week with the band, and then they'll start adding the horns and singers in. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's, it's, it takes it takes a while because their music is pretty you know. Uh, intricate. So Donald sometimes starts with certain members of the band, and typically what's first? I mean, with the horns, uh, and then gets them all, you guys have sessions together, or or uh, go into a little bit more detail as to how, how the whole puzzle sort of fits together. Well, what he'll do is, before anybody gets there, they'll have a list of songs that we may need to just look at and just familiarize ourselves with. Mm-hmm. And it could be like 40-something songs. Yeah. But we're not going to do forty something songs. They Absolutely. just want to be able to pick and choose what they want to do. Mm-hmm. So they don't, you know, they they won't say, okay, sit down and just learn every song. Mm-hmm. Just you know, be familiar with it because they're going to have charts and everything there also. Mm-hmm. And um, pretty much, we'll start. They'll start with the rhythm section first. Gotcha. So it'll just be just rhythm, bass, drums, guitar, keyboards, and what have you. And we'll, you know, we'll rehearse rhythm for at least a week, a week and a half alone. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they'll add, you know, the horn section will come in and possibly along with the singers. And then if the singers don't come in with the horns, they'll come in a couple of days later. And then everybody's in there. So, you know, you're trying to get everybody in there pretty quick. But just to make sure the rhythm is down and has everything pretty pretty much down the way he wants, that's the way we start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is your first tour with Steely Dan, correct? Yes, it is. And you haven't played on any albums before, correct? No Steely Dan record. Okay, but you were obviously – you did more of the cat with Donald Fagan mm-hmm. and, of course, you toured with him. You know, now that you've uh, had a chance to play with both sides of, the, of the, the Steely Dan coin, are there any major differences you see between the two styles that Donald Fagan presents and what Steely Dan presents? Well, I mean, with Steely Dan, I think, you know, Walter, you know, he has more of a say 
and what they do and how they do it, they kind of bounce off each other. Mm-hmm. And then with Donald's own thing, Donald is, you know, the guy in his thing. He's going to do what he, he wants to do. But it's it's kind of it's kind of one and the same. Yeah, musically, it's you feel like it's 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 pretty similar the way they go about. Or the yeah, way... it's, it's kind of similar the way they go about doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, with with Walter, when Walter comes in, he adds his input and he adds his guitar and all that stuff that he does. Um, and 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 when we do Donald's his own solo thing, it's not a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, you know, Donald singing solo, and it's all his solo stuff. And when he's with Walter, maybe Walter may sing a song or, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, it's that whole thing. I'm very curious in, you know, in, in this tour that you're on. You're, these are honestly um, rock classic tunes. Mm-hmm. Everybody that's, uh, you know, uh, an aficionado of rock or can appreciate it. And, and you're playing on tracks that that are so classic. And they were originally recorded by guys like Chuck Rainey and, you know, even Walter Becker even played on uh, some bass tracks. Absolutely. Um, as we're approaching, you know, as you approach these classic tunes, how are you interpreting this and finding the groove again? Is it's, Chances are you're doing something a little different than Chuck may have done it and so forth. Can you talk us through a little bit of how you're interpreting uh, this music now? Yeah, I mean – the music that was done then, I mean, is is great and it, it is mm-hmm. classic and and I try to hit on a lot of those poignant things that they did just to keep that that whole thing going. Then I'll add my little stuff in there, but I don't stray away too far from what's going on. Uh-huh. But the groove is the definite thing. Right. When you're playing these songs, I mean, you can play the right licks, but if it's not grooving, it's not right. swinging right. Right. It's just licks. Right. So I mean. I definitely listen to the records and um, really see what it is that I think that makes this thing happen. Mm-hmm. And then I'll keep some of that and I'll add my little thing in there. But I'll, I'll really keep the heart and soul of what's going on there. Yeah. Do you find that, um, you know, your performances and the details of maybe a song, I mean, it could you could emphasize one note in a certain certain time of a song and maybe another evening – dig on something else? I mean, it, can it vary minutely like that from performance to performance? Oh, absolutely. It yeah. can vary minutely like that mm-hmm. because it, it depends on how deep the groove is that night yeah. that I'm feeling on that one song. I may do something totally different or, or throw something in there that I hadn't played before. Right. And just in the same manner that Donald may not be playing the same keyboard part. Absolutely. Correct. I mean, he may be going off a little tangent here that will guide you to discover something else, right? That's right. That's what this music is all about. I mean, you keep the integrity of it, but it's not so stringent where it's like you're strapped. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So there is an element of, of improvisation. Absolutely. On stage. Is. That's great. Well, sometimes it doesn't sound like that. You know, uh, yeah. sometimes, you know, Donald has such a stigma of formality. Do you follow me? Yeah. Uh, everybody thinks that this guy is in a box and, and it's got to be so perfect until this. And, um, in our other conversation in the past, uh, you told us that it's, it's it's not quite so, right? No, it's not a perfect world. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has a structure the way it is, and it's very defined how he writes. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows that, you know, when you hear the Steely Dan stuff or hear Donald Fagan, that's a certain way he writes. Yeah, It's not like so stringent where it's like, okay, this has to be perfect and it has to be played exactly like this. It doesn't. He's, he's totally opposite from that. It's like, well, you can go away from that. You don't have to play that. Yeah. You can play. You you can play something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He likes to get away from that. That's cool. You know, Freddie. I don't, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a great documentary out. Um, it's a DVD about the making of Steely Dan's Asia, and in it, Chuck Rainey demonstrates a typical bass groove 
compared to the bass groove Fagan and Becker created for the song Josie. It's a pretty fascinating look at how Fagan and Becker uh, took a typical bass groove and created something that's that's much more elaborate, but yet it maintained that deep pocket groove. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm sure you've experienced that now having played with these guys for a couple of years. Oh, absolutely, because whatever they, whatever they give you, no matter how intricate it's going to be, the groove has to be deep. Mm-hmm. That's what gets Dono off, is <laughs> the, the groove. <laughs> I mean, you can play his song. If it's not grooving, it's just another song. <laughs> that sounds. That should be a slogan for it. When it's grooving, yeah, that's that's where he is. That's a song right there. You should write, put some lyrics. No, I was going to say music on that. That'd be a great line for a T-shirt for you know the, the Fagan tour. You know, that's right. It's <laughs> Donald grooving. gets off on the groove. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talking about the groove, you know, when you think of the drummers that uh, the Donald and Walter have brought in over the years. You know, for the different sessions and so forth. Uh, you know, names such as Jeff Porcaro, mm-hmm. you know, Bernard Purdy, Steve Gadd. Jim the, Keltner. Yeah. They all rise to the top. Um, but now we're seeing a, a, a new name, Keith Carlock, and uh, he's sort of a newcomer and into the select group of drummers. Oh, yeah. And uh, tell us a little bit about him and, and because you guys work pretty uh, seamlessly in, in, in laying down the rhythm and the groove. Oh, yeah. we Yeah, he understands, you know, me as a bass player and I understand him as a drummer that we're like, we're like one. Mm-hmm. And when we come together, that's what, when you hear us, you don't hear two separate people. Mm-hmm. You hear one person because mm-hmm. whatever I'm doing, Keith is doing whatever, you know, he's doing, I'm doing. We'll I'll play things like a pickup, and he's playing the same pickup on his tom. Yeah. So we totally think a lot alike, and we're, you know, we're in the same pocket because that's my main thing, I mean. Yeah. I've, I've, you know, wherever you stand, you know, with uh, Keith during rehearsals, do you end up standing close to the drummer, or are you cross stage just to look at him? I mean, where do you like to be in proximity to a drummer? I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm in my area. I have a area that I typically stand in because my bass. I have to hear my bass a certain way. Yeah, and then I'm hearing my drums. And, uh-huh. You know, I, sometimes I'll turn around and because I want to get some eye contact with yeah. him to let him know that yeah, man, you cause you really got this groove locked. Mm-hmm. You know, just to give him some encouragement. Mm-hmm. You know, and likewise, I yeah. like I like having eye contact with the drummer. I don't have to look at him the whole show, but I mean, if something's really going down and deep, I want to let him know that this is dirty. Right. Well, you know, you're you're probably as and um, you know, in regards to musicianship, you know, probably more mature than he is in season. You know, being on the road and so forth. Mm-hmm. But what happens in a situation, uh, Freddie, when? You know, the tempo starts, you know, as awesome of a drummer that I'm sure he is. If, if he slows down a little bit, how do you handle a situation that the groove is coming down? How, how do you control that? This has been like a thing that, you know, I'm known for uh-huh. is controlling where the groove is. Okay. If the groove starts to slow down, I know how to make the groove come back without it seeming like I did anything to make it come back. Because I know how to lean on the drummer. I know uh-huh. how to push and pull. It's almost like riding a horse. Yeah. It's like if he wants to get away from you, you just kind of, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of ease him. You just kind of pat on him a little bit. Okay, I'm, I got this right. Everything is fine. Mm-hmm. It's right here, and you got to get him back because you got to massage him. That's awesome. Yeah, you got to massage him. You got you got to work with him, and, and and the whole thing is about that massaging that groove every time because sometimes it can seem like it can get away a little bit, but you have to mm-hmm. know exactly where it is every time in order to just kind of ease it back. You don't have to do anything big. You just you just ease it back, mm-hmm. and they know yeah. what's happening. They'll start to get right back with you. Yeah. Hey, Freddie, I want to change gears a little bit. We'll come back to more of the Steely Dan, Donald Fagan uh, topic later, but 
I want to ask you uh, about your early music career. And at what age did you uh, know that you wanted to really take off with music, and that's what you wanted to be doing? I, the grade, I was in the tenth grade. Mm-hmm. I was just going to high school. Right then, because I was, you know, playing a lot of baseball and football, this and that, and I was, you know, I really liked baseball a lot. When I gave up baseball for music, I knew right then and there, this is what I wanted to do for a living. Wow. (laughs) And there was nothing else I could see myself doing or wanted to do. And so that's when I knew. You were pretty focused as a kid, huh? I was focused. Yeah? Oh, yeah. You didn't have to tell me to practice. You didn't have to tell me to do this. I went and got my own lessons. I, you know, I saved up the money for my, you know, for my first instrument. Really? All that. Yeah. I was, I was very focused on what I wanted. So you started off playing the bass, right? Absolutely. How, how, what brought you to the bass? I mean, what was it that lured you to that particular instrument yeah. over mm-hmm. the drums or something else? Well, I mean, I, I used to want to be a drummer. Never could afford a drum set. <laughs> there was never any place to put a drum set in my right. house. <laughs> so we scrapped that. And then, you know, I was in junior high school and, you know... I got interested in the upright bass, so I joined, you know, the little school orchestra and stuff and started, you know, studying with the orchestra. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I just, I took to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really so, took so to it. So you started really your formal training with, with an orchestra with uh, an acoustic bass. Absolutely. That was my formal training. How long did your orchestra career last? Through high school, yeah. I had some, because I was in, um, I'm from Oakland, California, mm-hmm. and up in the Berkeley area, they had this. Uh, summer music program where you would have to audition to get into the program and I went and did the audition and I made it through the program and I got to study some jazz I got to study you know some orchestra stuff and and I joined the Oakland Youth Symphony Orchestra and all that stuff through high school and then after that after I got out of high school my professional career kind of took off. You've you've mentioned uh, in, in some other uh, dialogue that you have with other interviews about uh, an area drummer named James Levi. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's a barrier drummer. Yeah, you say he influenced your your playing as a bass player. Oh, he did. He James Levi was my groove mentor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I used to play in top forty bands with him, mm-hmm. and he was really into the groove, and he taught me how to groove. Well, you know, he he, he was a member of, uh, I think he was uh, part of Herbie Hancock's Headhunter Band. Now that you mentioned that, he was a part of Herbie Hancock's Headhunter Band, and he's the one that got me the audition really? with Herbie, and that's when I got my first professional break no with Herbie Hancock. Wow. Holy cow. That's yeah. a good first professional break, i That was I'd my say. first professional job. <laughs> that's one heck of a professional break. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he was he was part of the uh, other guys that were in the band were of course Paul Jackson Jr., Bill Summers, and uh, Paul Paul not Paul Jackson Jr. No, Paul Jackson. Yeah. Paul Jackson. Yeah, uh-huh. and uh, and they were part of the 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 band too. You know. Yeah. At that at that time when when I got in, it was James Levi, Wawa Watson, Benny Mop, and Herbie Hancock, mm-hmm. and myself because he. Herbie had was just going through a change of bass players. Paul had left, and he had Jocko for a while. Okay, and then he had auditions with other bass players, and you know he, the drummer told him to check me out, had me come over, and I was yeah. still young, and and I went over and auditioned for him, and as he said, man, look, this is what I want, and <laughs> there, there, there it is. And then you hooked hooked up after that, yeah, yeah. Well, you know the, uh, what? It, what was it about the East Bay rhythm sound? And, you know, it was just it had that. Sort of funky, you know, gospel thing going. Yeah, it had that. That was just East Bay. I mean, you know, through you know, Sly and the Family Stone, yeah, Tower Power, Larry Graham. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of great musicians. They were just in 
to the funk and into music. Yeah. A lot of great musicians came from up there. So, I mean, you know, there was, at that time, there was, a, you know, a lot of clubs to play, you know, top 40 gigs or what have you, jazz or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was just a, a great area of time for music. You know, when it comes to the playing styles, such as, you know, the various styles, such as funk and jazz and R&B, soul, Latin, you know, the bass groove is critical and really makes a recording. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about how you feel for the groove and, and compositionally, what is necessary to build upon? The necessary thing for when you're trying to build a groove, like, say, if I go in with Donald, mm-hmm. you have to be simple. Because mm-hmm. when you're recording, I mean, you don't, you don't want to play a lot. I mean, you have your place where you play, but you want simplicity. Right. And everything has to speak. I mean, the sound is from the tonality to the sound, everything. And it has to be simple. And then when you step out and play something, it has to mean something. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to build this house, but you need a foundation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the foundation has to be really, really solid mm-hmm. and feel really good. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... From the simplicity standpoint, even though you can play all these different things, it's about recording and building that foundation. It's about simplicity. You know, when you start talking like that, I start t- thinking about church, about you, know, <laughs> you got to build that foundation, man. You know? That's right. That, that's build your life on, on, you know, on the solid rock. You know, you're talking gospel style right here. That's right. <laughs> that's where I come from. <laughs> did, you, did you ever play in church, by the way? I'm just curious. Yeah, I, that's, that's where I started playing in church. Did you really? Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. That, that, that's awesome. I, I actually started playing keys in church. And yeah, that's, uh, that's, gee whiz, that's the foundation for church is the foundation for a lot of musicians because a lot of young musicians are coming out of church now. Is, isn't that amazing though? I mean, how gospel and church has just influenced so many people as to you know the, it's it's a training ground and it just shoots people you know into a whole new uh, area of music. Oh yeah, because the gospel. I mean, gospel is blues, is R and B, it's everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and if you can get your training in that in a church, I mean, because it's like. A lot of times in churches, even back then, you didn't have a drummer. That's right. It was you, a piano player, and probably an organ player. Yeah. And you had to keep time, <laughs> and you had to play, and it, 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 it was all about feeling and emotion. Yeah. So it taught you how to do all that. That's why Larry Graham was so good. Yeah. You know, he used to play with his grandmother. Really? She played piano, and he played bass, so I he learned it. how to play by, you know, playing his bass, and he had to keep time with his thumb and, you know, all that stuff. Hey, I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about the work you've done with the Isley Brothers. You know, uh, Ronald, Rudolph, Ernie, Marvin, they're they're famous for hits like It's Your Thing. Mm -hmm. And you worked on Masterpiece with the original three Isleys, right? Yeah, it was, you know, so long ago. We're we're really going in there, aren't we? (laughs) So you found that? (laughs) (laughs) We dug everything about you, man. (laughs) You digging up stuff I even forgot. (laughs) In a little while, we're going to start talking about your girlfriends. I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. no. I'm I'm just totally joking. (laughs) Totally joking, okay? So, yeah, you're talking about Masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I remember remember doing that, um, that session in L.A., I just, you know, I haven't heard that record in such a long time. Uh-huh. The reason we've sort of chosen to bring it up from the archives is because it was different than other Isley albums. Right. This thing was more sophisticated. It wasn't as funky. It wasn't. It was softer, right? Mm-hmm. It had a more orchestral feel. So, I mean, it, it was a, a total switch for the Isleys to sort of address uh, this uh, softer style, but uh, it was it was a pretty much a, a departure for them, you know? Yeah, they. I think on that record, they used the uh, orchestrator that did a lot of the Barry White records, mm-hmm. uh, Gene Page. I see. And Gene, you know, writes a lot of those sweet string arrangements and stuff. Yeah. 
So uh, I think they use Gene a lot on this. It was a different record for them. Yeah. Um, I'd like to to touch a little bit of, of your long-standing relationship with uh, Patrice Ruchin. And, oh, yeah. Uh, if, uh, if our audience right now doesn't recall the name, uh, Patrice Ruchin is, uh, you know, she's someone uh, who has broken through major barriers as a singer-musician. I think she was a past musical director of the Emmys. and But you've worked with her an awful long time, right? Absolutely. On, on practically every single album that she's put out, and she's got a sultry, wonderful, uh, you know, style. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about that relationship right there. When, how did you first hook up with her and, and begin uh, helping her with the music? I met Patrice um, in Berkeley, California. I think she was there doing an interview. I don't know if I had worked with Herbie Hancock at the time, but I might have worked with Herbie at the time and she was there, but I kind of mm-hmm. forget. She was there doing an in-store interview for one of her records because uh, she was on Fantasy before I worked with her. Mm-hmm. She did uh, Prelusions and Before the Dawn, I think it is. Right. And uh, we had kind of hooked up and stayed in touch with each other, and she found out, you know, I was working with Herbie Hancock, and one thing led to another, and we just we just had a great relationship, and, you know, mm-hmm. she wanted me to work with her, and I came to L.A. to work with her. And then we started, you know, writing all this music together. Yeah. So, you know, from one of her biggest songs that I wrote was Forget Me Not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was my baseline, and you know the melodies and all that stuff, and I brought it to her, and you know we finished it up, and one thing led to another, and the song never went away. <laughs> yeah, that song "Forget Me Nots" has been it's been recorded by a lot of different artists, and oh, uh, yeah. it's also been sampled by a lot of rap groups too. Absolutely, I think Will Smith being one of the biggest, yeah. right, right, became Men in Black, and then we did another song. It's called uh, "Haven't You Heard," mm-hmm. uh, which Kirk Franklin has out right now on his record. Yeah. It's a big hit on him. It's entitled Looking For You. Looking For You. And that's a big record for us right now. Well, Kirk is hot. Yeah, he's really hot. The guy's a major talent. But uh, (laughs) when you start laying down, when you work with uh, Patrice on, and when you started laying down the groove here, Forget Me Nots, I mean, that is such a strong groove that that you've got. I mean, it's almost like uh, once you hit something good, it sort of seems to transcend time, doesn't it? I mean, it just lives on forever, doesn't it? Everybody everybody can dig it. What I was doing when I wrote that song, I was mm-hmm. in the, I was sitting in bed one night just playing my bass. That's when you know at that time you would play your bass and you'd write on the bass. Okay, this and that before you know all that you had any drum machines and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. I just came up with this bass line, so I would just sit up in my bed and I would just groove on this bass line. That's hot. And I had the whole song in my head. Yeah, all the sections of the song and everything. It was done. It was done. It was all in my head. I yeah. had, because it's a it's a it's a total baseline song. I I can recall a project that even George Michael did. Yeah, and he had some. I think he had sampled or yeah, or he, he had put some stuff from Forget Me Nots, and it sounded hot. He sampled Forget Me Nots. The name of the song was Fast Love. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I, I, I was looking for that today, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, he didn't record Forget Me Nots, but but it was Fast Love. You're right. Uh huh. That's right. He, it was he, Fast he, Love he off, used it at the end of his song off of the older album, and uh, <laughs> and I tell you, I mean he. He just wove it right into it, you know. Oh, absolutely! And it was hot. It, it really worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I think that's what, that's one of those songs that have touched a lot of people more than I even can imagine. I can imagine that. Yeah, a lot of you know, just people I don't know. A lot of artists. I mean, you know, they just love this song. The song never goes away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
You've played with such a, a wide variety of, of artists over the years. I mean, we could probably sit here and talk all night about each individual right. <laughs> artist you played with. But, but uh, there's somebody in mind that I wanted to ask you about, and that's Michael Jackson. Okay. Now, you've performed with Michael, right? Absolutely. Was this primarily in the studio, or did you tour with him, or both? I toured with him. Um, I, cut, I went in the studio and cut some tracks with him, some tracks that didn't make his album, because he was all, would always be in the studio cutting tracks. Mm-hmm after tracks anyway, and this stuff didn't even go on the record, but mm-hmm. I did the history tour with him you know, in 1996. Oh, okay, right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Michael, I think, in the general public is such a mysterious character. And what was it like working with him in the studio, I mean, or even on the road? And pertaining to the studio, did he really take control of sessions in the musical direction, or did he leave the playing really up to the session players? Michael does have his ideas what he wants, and he knows how to convey it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, so it's... If it's something that he wants, he'll he'll tell you, say, well, I'm hearing this right here or this kind of thing or this kind of sti- style or sound or whatever. You know, and other than that, he'll let you do, you know, do your thing. Mm-hmm. But he does have, you know, ideas in, in certain ways he wants it played. Yeah. And then live, I mean, you know, because we rehearsed, we rehearsed, you know, for a long time before we even hooked up with Michael because he's always, you know, rehearsing with the dancers and mm-hmm. all this all that stuff, and, right. and when we get with him, you know, this stuff is down. I mean, you know, everything is everything is done the way it's supposed to be. Well, when he put on a show, it, it just wasn't about the music. It was about the whole environment, the atmosphere. And oh, absolutely. It was visual. It was sound. It was textural. It was it was everything. So it's a show. It's a total show. I mean, didn't that sort of amaze you at the enormity of of the of the whole tour? Yeah, that was the first like high profile tour I had ever been on. Right. And you know, and it comes with everything. I mean, you know, with all the fans, all the, the hotels, you, you know, you hear them screaming at night. Every everything. <laughs> so it comes. You know what you see. That's what it comes with. It's yeah. almost as if everybody in the entourage turns into a god, don't they? <laughs> Isn't it sort of freaky sometimes? Yeah, I mean, you know, you deal with it. I mean, you you just you just know what you're there for. Right. You know what you're there to do. It's it's not about you. Mm-hmm. It's about him. They come to see him. But if you're up there with him, and then you are you are part of that thing. But I mean, you know, you you have to know what you're there doing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And that's a that's, I'd like to segue from that and into. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your strategy when you first start working with an artist that you've never worked with before. You know, you're, you're walking into a session. I mean, a lot of times I know that, you know, uh, session players will get charts ahead of time. So when they walk into the studio, they're ready to go. I mean, what's it like? I mean, you're going from, you know, Michael Jackson to, you know, over the years, Michael Jackson at the Isley Brothers to, I know you've done some work with Stevie Wonder and et cetera. But, you know, uh, you, you just go in with your same game plan every time? I go in with the same game plan. When I go into the studio to play on records, or when I go on the stage to play live, I approach it all the same way. Mm-hmm. I don't have a live sound that I use for live, and I don't have a studio sound that I use for studio. Mm-hmm. When Freddie Washington is there, you get Freddie Washington <laughs> on both sides. Mm-hmm. I don't have a different strategy. Now, I may use on live, I'm going to use a bigger amp mm-hmm. and everything, but I'm going to use the same basis, and I'm going to approach the groove and everything, the textures, the same way. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to your playing style, you—I mean—that's probably why you've been such the uh, yeah. you know A-list, you know, stable player that people have gone to year after year. Absolutely, because they can. I mean, when I'm called, I mean, I never know what style I'm going to get called for. Mm-hmm. So they—they they, it could be a Latin thing, it could be pop, it could be R and B, it could be rock, it could be country. Mm-hmm. I'll cover it all. We've been talking about various artists and just. 
you can't think back, have there been any really memorable sessions or any interesting stories from sessions that uh, that just right there on the top of your head that you'd like to share? Oh, you know something? This, this is an interesting story. Okay. The last Crusaders record. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. The Crusaders, I did the rural renewal record with them. And they got the members back together. They got Joe Sample, Wilton Felder, and Sticks Hooper back together. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we were all in the studio. We had Ray Parker there. <laughs> uh, Dean Parks might have been there. Yeah. Also, Arthur Adams. Okay. You know, the, the old crew that they've used. And this, the producer was Stuart Levine. So we were in the studio. We were cutting all these tracks and doing all these great songs. And, you know, Wilton, he's great, this and that. And, you know, he can. Rip, Wilton is a bass player. Because okay. he's played on a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he can, you know, be hard on bass players. <laughs> and Wilton said, he's in front of everybody. And Wilton, you know, he barely, rarely says, he does his thing and very rarely says anything. He said, Freddie, I've been here in the studio for three days, and I haven't said one word to you. He <laughs> said, you are grooving your butt off. <laughs> and when everybody heard that, the producer, Stu Levine, said, whoa, he said... He said, that's a first. He said, you broke the mold. <laughs> you broke the mold. He said, Wilson ain't never said that about nobody. <laughs> He's just there watching you groove your butt off. He said, you, gro- you are grooving your butt off. He said, I've been here for three days, and I haven't said a word to you. <laughs> you, can, you can frame that, right? Yeah. You've passed the audition. And that made me feel so good. I was, I was having a great time. <laughs> that, that that's awesome. That that's, yeah. that's priceless. You know, we like to get back a little bit with um, as we come uh, uh, closer to the end of our time with you uh, to get back with uh, talking about uh, the Morph the Cat project. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you're currently right now on tour for the the Steely Dan yeah. uh, tour, you know, you just actually right before this, you just finished touring with Donald Fagan to promote uh, the album Morph the Cat. Yes. Now, my question is, you know, since this is new album, it has completely new material, okay? It's not like you're working on classic Steely Dan stuff that's been here for 20 years, mm-hmm. but it's all brand new. It's new material, and it's, and um, you know, your preparation for that tour, how is it different than this tour that you're on, the preparation side? Well, doing the um, Donald Fagan, when he was promoting the Morph the Cat tour, mm-hmm. for that record, I played on the whole record. Right. And so... That was some stuff I got to help create. Mm-hmm. I mean, stuff was pretty much laid out, but there's some stuff I got to play, you know, for the first time, and I'm the only one that played on that record. Absolutely. It was, you know, preparation, you know, for doing it was, was like, you know, I did it, and it was just about me going back and listening to it to get all the nuances. Right. And then when I heard the first record he did, the solo record, um, yeah, Nightfly, which is a classic. It has yeah. classic stuff on there. Sure. I went back to learn that stuff, and I wanted to really keep it true to what was on there. And then I had some leeway to do my thing with that also. Right. So, I mean, you know, it was great. Well, it's interesting because my, my question basically was, was sort of focusing on, you know, the, the, the Steve Dan tour. You know, you've got the pre-recorded legacy of Chuck Rainey. And yeah. that has done that, and it's stamped in concrete. But now you're sort of stamping in your groove to this original, you know, music there. That for the next few years, people are going to be referring to this as they play it. Yeah, I mean, you know? it, it, it's it's great, man. Because I mean, I've always loved Donald and Walter and the music, the Steely Dan stuff. They've been my heroes for mm-hmm. a long time, and I'm yeah. glad I finally got a chance to work with these guys. Yeah, and it feels so good, and because I really I understand their music. Yeah, I understand. The groove, you know, I, I really understand 
where they're coming from, no matter how intricate it sounds, mm-hmm. it's all about the groove mm-hmm. and where you're not playing, where you put notes and where you don't put them. I got to tell you, Eddie and I got to see one of the shows on the tour. Uh, we were up in Chicago and, uh, I think we both walked away from that show pretty mesmerized. I, the, the band in general was just – I mean I've been to a zillion concerts and I, I just have never walked away from a concert feeling like that was probably one of the best performances from a band I've ever seen. Oh, man, just an incredible, incredible band yeah, as tight were, as can were, be. They were tearing it up. We were, we were feeling pretty good. Yeah, yeah. John Harrington yeah. and Wayne Krantz and Keith Carlock back there and yourself and it was just, uh, just awesome. Hey, Freddie, did you have any favorite tracks on that album, the ones that you really felt strongly about after you recorded it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, Night Belongs to Mona. Well, that's a track that when I first heard the disc, I kind of skipped past it. I think we talked about that when mm-hmm. I, we talked to you in New York. But, but man, I, after I've listened to that album now about a dozen times, I, I, I just go right to that song. I just oh, yeah. absolutely <laughs> love it. It's a great song. Mm-hmm. My daughters call it the Feeling Pretty song. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, you know, feeling pretty. Right, feeling pretty. Yeah, I've got two daughters, and they just love it. every time we put Mona on. They said, "Hey, Dad, put put Mona on, put Mona on." So we put Mona on. Everybody's feeling pretty, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Freddie. I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about how you keep fresh. Do you have any other interests and passions other than playing bass? And, and uh, what is something about Freddie Washington that people just wouldn't know about? I mean, I like to golf. I'm, I'm a sports guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I played a lot of baseball. I can't play too much now anymore because of my <laughs> knee or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I like to go out and golf. And, you know, I'm a pretty simple guy. Mm-hmm. I'm not that complicated. And because I don't think music is that complicated. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of approach life like your music, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm just kind of like my music. <laughs> just I'm a just simple, a groove. <laughs> just a groove. You got a groove to life, groove to music, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. You know, yes. uh, some of our some of our listeners, you know, we talked about this just a little while ago, but um, a lot of our listeners are, are musicians. And just out of curiosity, what's your bass setup? Right now, my main instruments that I use, I use a, um, a 72 Fender Precision. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was one of my first professional instruments I've had, and I've always had, and I've played on a lot of records with that. After that, I got uh, Ken Smith Five String 1986, mm-hmm. which is a sweet, sweet instrument. Really? And I've had other instruments that I've played over the years, but the precision I always go back to. Now, on Morph the Cat, I played a five string. That was my Ken Smith. Mm-hmm. And then I played three basses on that whole record. It was a, a Fender, a five string Ken Smith, and a 1965 Baldwin. Mm-hmm. It's an English bass. Really? Sounds incredible. So, I mean, those are the three instruments that I've kind of incorporated into recording now, right now, because for a while it was just maybe Fender all the time, or it might have been just the five-string all the time when that when it changed and basses started going to five-string. Mm-hmm. But I used, I kind of use these three basses all the time now. Cool. And yeah. uh, your, your live setup, as opposed to your recording setup, is it primarily you're still using the same basses for the... For, or same, you... same basses for live also. Mm-hmm. This time I'm using like 99% is going to be Fender. Gotcha. Yeah. I'll use five string on one song. Steely Dan's music to me is a Fender sound. Mm-hmm. And then there's one song that, you know, um, Glamour Profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to use a five string on that. I think that was on the Gaucho album, and that was, you know, that was their last album before they took a 20-year hiatus. So That's like, one of my favorite songs. Oh, oh. I, mean, oh I, did, I love that album in general. I always am mesmerized by that, uh, that cut because I don't know how many 
key changes there are in that thing. Oh, it's just, oh, it's, but my God. It's one of those songs. You have to be on your P's and Q's. <laughs> you know, you, and your mind can't stray away. You oh, have to know that song. Oh, yeah. You go half up. I mean, you must have at least 20 different changes, half up, one down, and, come, you know. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. But that that's a masterpiece of a song. Yeah, he, he that's how he writes. I mean, you know, you go around this corner, and then when you finish... When you think you're finished going around the corner, here comes an alley. <laughs> One of the questions we like to ask our guests is, uh, you know, as a musician, you probably have uh, music, uh, you know, outside of, of what you played on that you really enjoy. And I wanted to know uh, what's on your iPod these days. What's in my iPod? You know, you know what I just added to my iPod? Hmm. I added some John Coltrane. Uh, what's the album? Um, Favorite Things. There you go. And um, uh, Love Supreme. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's one of my favorite yeah. albums. I added, I added that to my iPod because you know the reason why I did it? Mm. Because I was driving my car and, the, and my son said, Hey, Dad, have you ever heard of this guy named John Coltrane? I said, Yeah, I've heard of John Coltrane. <laughs> He's a legend. Everybody's heard of him. He said, Well, this is her, you know, the little girl is a niece. And then I said, Right then and there, I said, Okay, I got to go out and find John Coltrane so I can hit my son to that music. Yeah. And that's why I went and got it. Well, hey, Freddie, thanks so much for spending time with us here on Inside Music Cast. Thank you for having me. And uh, any, do you have a website, Freddie? Uh, you know something? I'm going to be building a website now, and it's going to be coming pretty soon. Okay. So um, you just be on the lookout for it. Well, we'll keep in touch, okay? Okay. Hey, hey. thanks again, and uh, look for uh, Freddie out on the uh, Steely Dan Tour if they're coming to an area near you. All right, then. Take care. All right, look forward to seeing you. Bye-bye. All right, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks once again to Freddie Washington for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week, so be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 